It's a new year and a new This Week in Retro and sit tight because we've got a surprise for you coming up on today's show, including this week's stories. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A brand new year of retro. A Commodore 64 in John Wick. The C64 at 40. The Amiga 500 Mini's 25 games and release date have been confirmed. All this and more in This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello and a happy new year to you all. There is of course no disguising that there's something a little bit different about the intro to the show today. We took a break for Christmas and we've come back and no, John has not turned Australian. We have a new presenter in the form of Chris. Welcome aboard, Chris. Happy to be here, Neil, and not in the least bit overwhelmed or afraid. Although <laughs> I am a little bit disappointed that we're not going to do some kind of Doctor Who regeneration sequence where I replace oh, yeah. John as the new Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Duncan, if you can make that happen, Producer Duncan. I mean, you know, I, I, we clearly pay you enough to pull out BBC-style special effects like that. Um, <laughs> make, give us a Doctor regeneration scene, please. Uh, John would absolutely love that, being a Doctor Who fan that he is. But um, I must just say quickly that we really appreciate the work that John did. He helped us to start the podcast from the very beginning, uh, supported it all the way through its growth. And many of you won't know this, but he recorded the podcast every week at 6 a.m. He obviously has a full-time job as a teacher in the daytime, so he'd get up at 6, record the podcast, and... um, I think with a little bit of reflection over the Christmas period, uh, reflection on his other commitments, his job, it wasn't sustainable to do that. But that's not to say he won't be back. He's very much still a part of the This Week in Retro family. So thank you to John. And of course, welcome to Chris. And with Chris on board, it means the worldwide view of retro will continue. However, instead of a view from across the pond in the US, we're going down under to Australia. So Chris, why don't you quickly tell us a little bit of background about yourself so that the listeners can start to get to know you? Yeah, well, I, it's actually probably your fault I'm here, Neil, to be honest. I'm pretty sure it was your Amiga 500 Trash to Treasure that popped into my feed for no apparent reason um, back in probably 2018. Um, nostalgia wasn't even a regular word in my vocabulary, but I was suddenly hit with this need, and it is a need, Neil, to reown an Amiga. And, well, now I'm one of those seedy people who snipe eBay late at night. Um, I've got a growing collection made up mostly of the systems that I grew up with as a child, um, including a Video Pack G7000, an Acon Electron, a Spectrum Plus 3, and a 48K. Uh, but my prized possession, Neil, um, and where it all started, was really rebuying an Amiga 500 Batman pack, just like the one I had back in 1989. Um, and you, you might be able to see just to the right of me here um, as well. I've also been sucked into getting an Amiga 1200 with an 030 accelerator, uh, despite the prices for reasons I don't yet understand. <laughs> and I think if you move your head just to one side, we might even be able to see Ooh. the Batman logo. There it is on the shelf there for, for viewers watching the video. That's not your original Batman pack, though, is it? You went out and, and rebought that. That's right. Just sold a kidney, remortgaged the house, and it was <laughs> So you've really been on a retro journey over the last five years, getting reacquainted with everything. Uh, I know you're very much a part of the community. You've got your own YouTube channel. Um, you've contributed to this show in the past under your username of, uh, is it 005 Agama, Omega 500 oh, you backwards? Got, you got it right for once, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put a link to your, your YouTube channel there as well for people who want to find out a bit more about you. Uh, and there's a lot more to learn about you, but first, first of all and, and first and foremost what we know about you is that you're you tickle the boxes to be on the show you're bald i mean i'll <laughs> let you off not having a beard but you're bald um you've got a microphone tick and you're an amiga fan so we've got everything we need let's get started with the first story of the show now christmas may be long forgotten to some already but it would be a shame not to take the opportunity to reminisce a little bit uh, and a little bit with chris to get to know him a bit better too uh, an immediate opportunity to do that and um i thought we should start this year off by just thinking of Christmas's past and maybe to pick two Christmas stories, two things uh, that, that really are nostalgic for us and remind us of, of some good times and some hardware or software or, or just experiences uh, that would tie in with the show. So I'm going to start off. I've got something on the table here, which I have mentioned in passing on the show in the past. And for, for audio listeners, I'll describe it to you. 
what I've got here was given to me Christmas. I don't know if it was 92, 93. I can't remember. Probably, probably 92. Um, it's a Commodore A570 CD-ROM drive, a single speed CD-ROM drive with the same styling as the Amiga 500 or 500 plus. And it would slot into that expansion port in the side, make a real wide boy of a machine. And uh, you'd pop your CD in a caddy and it would slide in. And um, all of a sudden, thanks to the kickstart ROMs that are in, inside this, my Amiga 500 was a full-on CD TV. It had the boot screen and everything. Um, so effectively, for uh, an item which was 70 or 80 pounds in the bargain bin, because it was already considered to be a flop at that point, um, picked it up cheap. Uh, I got what was retailing, you know, an, an Amiga, um, a, a CD TV was retailing at four or 500 pounds. So I felt like I'd done pretty well. And um, it came with some games bundled. It came with SimCity. It came with some kind of children's interactive fiction book. I think it was called Thomas's Snowsuit, something like that. They were just giving CDs away at this point. And I also bought something called CDPD, which was um, a double disc, which had just a huge catalog of public domain um, titles on there. And I spent Christmas that year. In the, I always associate Christmas with um, mostly with the kitchen because I take my computer down to the kitchen and set it up. <laughs> I was so antisocial. Uh, I was so bad. The family would all come over for Christmas and I would just, I, I was a horrible child. I would sit in the corner playing on my computer, just getting frustrated with anyone that interrupted me. Go away, I'm playing on my Amiga. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure some people can relate. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But, uh, um, yeah, I had a great time with this. Uh, but the, the weird thing was I got the most enjoyment out of these public domain collections. It was It represented real value for money, thousands upon thousands of titles. But you didn't actually play them off the CD. You had to put a floppy disk in. Uh, the CD would give you a menu. You'd choose what you want, and then it would write it. It would you know, unpack it onto a floppy disk. Then you would sometimes you would disable the A570 for full compatibility and um, load from the floppy disk. So <laughs> that, that was my entry into the world of multimedia, loading things from floppy disk. But, you know, it, it was a great memory and it was a superb present. And I was really pleased. Um, I think it was last year I got hold of uh, this one again. Um, so I'm reunited. It's not my original one, but I'm reunited with it. So there you go. Chris, how about you? Tell us about um, some of your Christmas memories. Uh, yeah, nice deal. But first of all, I have to ask, did it at least play those really dodgy full motion video game, well, games oh. in inverted commas that the CDTV yeah, yeah. was so renowned for? Yeah, you're talking about games like um, there was The Town With No Name, which um, mm. a lot of people will have seen on An Angry Video Game Nerds channel. And mm. there was uh, Psycho Killer was probably the worst, the absolute That's the worst. That's the one I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, yeah it, it would have played them, I think. But because I had an A500 and not an A500 Plus, there were some times where there were compatibility problems. So, for example, SimCity, which came with it, wouldn't load. I could never get that to load. I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, so I'm going to say yes. But uh, mm. the games like that, FMV games like that, were still 30 or 40 pounds back in the day and, mm. and getting ratings of... 15 or 20 percent in amiga format you know it, it was no secret that they were absolutely awful so i never went down that road <laughs> well i'm a late november child neil so i actually can't put my finger on a christmas as uh, often as being a big ticket present item for me because um, often i would get the big present for my birthday and it would have to be a shared birthday christmas present if that makes sense oh that's um, mean <laughs> yeah, well, no, sometimes it works to your favor because you say, oh, can I have it for birthday and Christmas? And then you'd still end up with extra stuff for Christmas. So that oh, you did actually it. work okay, out to my yeah. favor. <laughs> oh, I definitely worked it. I found in recent years it doesn't work with the wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if she knows she's got me a big present for the birthday, sometimes there's nothing for Christmas and that's oh, the reality. No. <laughs> oh, it's terrible, isn't it? I, I bring these things upon myself. Um, but so in terms of retro items, though, one of the ones that really, it's, it's still that Christmas period of the year um, and it's the year that my brother bought back a spectrum plus three for my birthday um, he knew i'd been after a spectrum for years all my friends had the 48ks you know with the rubber keys um, and many an hour spent playing paperboy um, and a tick attack commando um, saboteur one of my all-time favorites um, and so i really wanted a spectrum and that's what i would ask for over and over again was a spectrum um, computer we ended up with an Acorn Electron. And then so a little bit later, uh, my friends had started to get into the plus twos. And I think uh, 
one in particular ended up with the, the James Bond pack with the light gun, oh, which I know, was, yeah. you know, really good. Yeah. Uh, and I think when I started to see those emerging, at least, I thought, well, maybe having that built-in cassette recorder would have been fantastic and maybe not as dodgy as the external tape drives. <laughs> and I, I perceived that maybe if you had a plus two that maybe didn't have as many load fails <laughs> as we became used to having um, and needing all that extra time to load a game. Um, but so that, that birthday, you know, I started unwrapping this present, not even expecting a spectrum from my brother, to be honest. And I started unwrapping it. And as I unwrapped this long box, I started to think, and it wasn't the one with the light gun, Neil. Um, mm-hmm. but as I started to unwrap it, um, I assumed as I saw more and more of the box emerge that it must be a plus two. And as I got to unwrapping the end of the box, I actually saw something I hadn't seen before because I'd, I'd, I swear I'd not seen them in the shops. I'd not even seen them advertised, but it was the plus three with the disk drive, which was fantastic. No load times. Well, there was still a load time, but nothing like a cassette. Yeah. And they loaded first time every time, Neil. It was amazing. You, you would have been the envy of your friends then with this plus three, you know, cutting edge technology, but you wouldn't have been able to trade tapes in the playground with them. Did that cause you a problem? Uh, fortunately not, because the uh, the Electron had died, hence the need for a new computer in the house anyway, but we still had the tape deck. We had a generic tape deck for that, so we were able to repurpose that uh, um, okay. and use that for the plus three. And ironically, I mean, probably a bit like you with your CD um, uh, add-on for the Amiga, um, we didn't actually buy many games on disc <laughs> at all. <laughs> the, the, well, they weren't most cheap. Of the collection, no, they weren't cheap at all. Um, and so most of the collection, well, the, the, the box set that we got, we got the Chart Busters pack. So it came with the the standard one, pack-in ones that came with the All's Plus 3s, um, mm-hmm. which has got about six games on one disc. Um, and then the Chart Busters disc had a, another six games on it as well. Um, but, yeah, most of my games were um, obviously legitimate cassettes um, or acquired <laughs> otherwise. Um, um, yeah. But yeah, they loaded They loaded most of the time through the Oxport in the back, which was great. Nice. Well, my next uh, story takes us into London. And I happen to know that you got your first Amiga in London. You and the family went to London, which tells us that despite the accent, you're not from Australia originally. So yeah. when did you move over to Australia? Uh, 2002. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's when okay. I came over. So, so I grew in up Kent. in the UK. Lived yeah. most of my life in Kent. Yeah. Okay. So um, my next story will, it was a Christmas that took me to the Trocadero Centre in London. Did you Ooh, ever go there yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. Do you remember when they had Alien War? Alien? I don't remember that. No, because oh. I lived I lived way out in the countryside down in Dorset. So it was few okay. and far between the, the times that I took trips to, to London and, and to the Trocadero. Um, Alien War, was that the one with the massive guns on the front of the cabinet? Was that different? No. So what Alien War was, it was a, a sort of walkthrough exhibition interactive experience, if you like. Oh. Um, that was actually set up using real props from the movies. So you got guided oh. through by a space marine um, and then the <laughs> <laughs> lights would go off, the strobes would flicker, and aliens would attack you. And I, I'm proud to say one grabbed my ankle at one point of the, <laughs> the exhibition. So fantastic. No, yeah. I didn't see that at all. What I saw when I went there, so I was um, I was shipped off to London for a week to, to stay with my uncle. I, I don't know what my parents had planned, but um, they didn't want me around. So they sent me off to London, stayed with an uncle, and I insisted that he take me into the Trocadero Centre because I'd read in my Amiga Format magazine that these new virtuality VR machines were being demonstrated there. Ooh, and yes. at the Trocadero, they had the full complement. They had, um, I can't remember if it was six or eight of the full sit-down VR machines for the Mech Warrior game. Mm-hmm. They had the uh, the biplane game where you would fly head-to-head. And um, I think at one point they had the pterodactyl first-person shooter game, but I didn't see that mm-hmm. when I was there. And uh, that was my first ever experience of VR. And... It was just really nice because there was the whole anticipation of reading about it. You, you know, there's no, there was no instant gratification back then. You'd read about a game, you'd wait for it to appear in your local shop, you'd save the money, you'd go and get it. Uh, and this was the, the same thing. You know, I was waiting for weeks mm. and weeks to go to London to try this thing out. To try out what was a five-minute experience probably on the MechWarrior game, and it cost me five pounds a go. I mean that was that was I was wiped out in one go. That was it. I was done. But um, mm. it was brilliant. And from that moment on, I spent the whole nineties thinking 
any minute now, VR is going to happen in the home. The headsets around the mm. corner and headsets came and headsets went and they were just, you, you know, the, they would, um, the refresh rate would be terrible. The field of view would be terrible. The support for software would be terrible. Got a little bit better when you started seeing VR headsets that natively supported DirectX, but mm-hmm. they were really expensive and it just never happened. And um, that's why I was so excited when this next round, you know, what I call the the second wave of consumer VR came along with the Oculus Rift and things like that. Um, that's when, why I was so excited when it came about. And um, I have to say, still a little bit disappointed that it hasn't taken off in a big way because I love it. Mm. But the practicalities of it do get in the way at the moment. And um, I, I hope it sticks around. I hope it I hope it gets enough support and enough love VR in the present day for it to continue to develop. Um, it looks like all the money being thrown at uh, the metaverse is probably going to help with that. But whether mm. we see it become a true mainstream gaming device, I don't know. But I've got such fond memories of that being my first experience. And um, I got to relive virtuality not long ago. Uh, well, it was it was a couple of years ago. Now <laughs> it's before the pandemic. Um, <laughs> when I got to go to the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. And um, that is the home of virtuality. That's where all the kit was made in, uh, near Leicester or in Leicester. And they've got loads of spares. They've got a full setup. You can go head-to-head in the pterodactyl game. It, it works surprisingly well. Um, you know, you don't get, get on it and think, why did I like this back in the day? You do think, <laughs> wow, this worked really well, you know? Um, especially the... Uh, the gun that you hold and you wave around in front of your face. It's, it's quite responsive yeah. and, it, and it, virtuality was really impressive for the time. Um, so if you get a chance to go to the retro computer museum in Leicester, uh, as and when it's open to the public again, well worth going to just try that out as well as all the other great stuff they've got. Anyway, I'm waffling on now, Chris. So tell us another <laughs> Christmas memory for you. Well, I've got to jump back into what you've just talked about as again, though, Neil, because, I mean, I also remember those VR games, which were based on Amiga. I didn't know this until recently, but they were based on Amigas inside, weren't they? The, um, That's right. They so Amiga 3000, yeah. and they had a custom uh, graphics card in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So so for me, I played on those at um, Lakeside, the shopping center um, in Thurrock. Um, they the, had an arcade. Uh, was or is the biggest shopping center in Europe at one point? Is that the one? Or is yes, that another one? That's the, yes, at the time yeah. it was the biggest. <laughs> the yeah, time, and yeah. so funnily it was. It's, a, it's another Christmas story because we used to regularly go there to do our Christmas shopping um, okay. with my parents. So, um, but yeah, I, I you know went off to to waste all my money in the arcade, and they had some of the VR games there. That was my only experience in the nineties of VR, other than some experimental stuff uh, for the PC a bit later. Um, and similar to you, I re- for the whole of the nineties, I was really waiting for it to launch. The game. I played there um, at Lakeside, though, there was a Harrier jump jet game, and I think I got oh, to yes. take off and then died. Um, <laughs> and that was that. Um, and then they had, and I've been trying to find reference to it recently to actually name the game, um, but I can't remember what it was called. Um, but it was it was a first-person shooter, and all I can remember was, well, um, you were sort of walking down, it was sort of on rails, and you were sort of walking down this corridor, and you had to stand up on this platform with the ring around you, and you could turn 360 degrees and shoot, so you held a gun, um, and there was all these robots dropping down and walking across gantries and all of that, and I, I, you had to shoot them. Except they had um, manned the station to stop people killing themselves with the cables attached to this thing, um, with <laughs> with this with this lady who kept telling me off every time I turned around. So it completely <laughs> broke the illusion. She's probably stopping trying to stop me from strangling myself or something. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It doesn't matter. You're in a game, you know. But, let me strangle myself. I'm sure I'll figure it out. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah. it completely ruined the experience for me. So, but other than that, like you say, even even though the, the you know there was flat shade polygons, the the immersion was there, and that's what counts. Um, that's right. Yeah, they had the Harrier jump jet one in a, a place called Tower Park in Poole. That's why I played that one again. Oh, it yeah. was five pound ago. Um, that's it. That was mm. one of those places where it was like a combo bowling alley slash arcade all in one place. But I remember at the height of it, there was that virtuality machine. There was Mad Dog McCree in a corner. There was Dragon's Lair. (laughs) It was just like all of the expensive arcade machines that you can think of. They were all there at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got hope for the current wave, Neil, uh, in the form of I've got a PSVR because I I found that the cheapest way in Mm -hmm. um, and now interested in the Oculus Quest 
2, is it? I think it is, as another cheap way and standalone, but you can also plug it into your PC for things like Elite Dangerous and all of that kind of thing. But it was when I was talking to a friend of mine who's an older guy. Um, I don't want to say how, how old, but I, I'm guessing <laughs> another 15 to 20 years on top of myself. And he's into Flight Simulator 2020, and he's got yep. his home rig set up. And I was speaking to him one day and quite unexpectedly he said, I've got an Oculus Quest and I've plugged that in and it's fantastic. So it is actually getting the attention of non-mainstream gamers and I think there's a glimmer of hope in that. Yeah, that's where they need to find that balance between practicality, so it has to be wireless, Mm. um, uh, and yeah, and then it can really attract the... uh, I don't want to say casual because anyone who plays Flight Simulator is not a casual gamer, but it has the... (laughs) We have to say that, don't we? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know what you're saying, though. I know what you're saying. So my last story, Neil, um, is uh, the Christmas and New Year parties that my eldest sister used to hold, um, which were always really awesome. Um, Probably a really powerful uh, memory for me there is um, playing Street Fighter 2 and Home Alone on my nephew Sammy's Amiga at my sister's house. Um, Uh, So similar to you, you have you have a good memory of playing Street Fighter Two on the Amiga. How is well, that well, let's, let's, I will I will quantify that go ahead. <laughs> as we go on. Um, but yeah, they're always fantastic parties, and a bit like yourself, Neil. Uh, you know, going to your kitchen um, to enjoy your Amiga while the rest of the family is being sociable. That's what I would do at my sister's house. Even though there were great parties, and we'd nip down and you know get some food, but we'd just retreat back up to my nephew's room and play on his Amiga because um, we're at his house. Um, and I remember this particular Christmas when he got both Street Fighter Two um, and Home Alone. You're right, Neil. They're not great games, <laughs> but you know what? We just stayed up there for the pretty much the entire party, just playing on both of them, um, even playing against each other on Street Fighter Two. You know, half sharing the keyboard and two joysticks and all that kind of rubbish. Um, they were terrible games, but, you know, we, we had fun. Um, yeah, well, and... greatness is relative to what you've got to compare it to. And uh, yeah, if those true. were the, the best that you had, then they would have been great. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Well, let's face it, the SNES version of Street Fighter 2 is the best one, but <laughs> <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, it's if, if I see those games, I see any reference to them. It's not the game I remember. It is literally those parties at my sister's house. And it's the yeah. vibe. It's the family. It's the music. It's, it's just that time. Um, and that's what it's about. Yeah, it's great times. Did you uh, do your modern Christmases resemble that at all? Do you ever find time for yourself to sneak away and play on a game, or uh, do you have to be a responsible adult these days? I think I think it's getting back to that because um, I've got twin boys, but they're now adults. So obviously, everybody gets together. We do the sociable thing, and then everybody gets bored of each other and goes off to their own corners of the house. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's actually plenty of time now, Neil. Plenty of Excellent. time to make room. Yeah, excellent. Well, may there be many more Christmases like that. And uh, I know it's a little bit late, but to all of the listeners, I hope you had a great Christmas and uh, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all from both of us. Have you seen John Wick, Neil, or are you a fan of the franchise at all? Um, I've seen John Wick 2, and this is going to really annoy a lot of people out there. I've not yet seen John Wick 1. (laughs) So I'm actually a really terrible movie goer, if I'm honest. You know, uh, I love a good film. Uh, but I'm really terrible at remembering anything after uh, anything about pretty much any film the day after I watched it. It just it just doesn't stick. Characters' names, the actors who were in them. I, I'm an appalling movie goer. You don't want me on your quiz team if there's a movie round. And um, you know, we're in a world where people like to impress with their depth of knowledge on movies and TV show universes, and you know how different marvel films tie in with each other in the whole marvel universe and all of this stuff i am not your guy so um Mm. and and i honestly think i've been met with disappointment by plenty of people who i've met who find out i'm not a trekkie for example (laughs) love love star trek absolutely love watching it but i haven't got a clue how any of the movies tie together or who's who it just (laughs) all falls out of my brain um so yeah john wick two but not john wick one Deal with it, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I can actually relate, Neil, to not retaining things in movies and TV shows anymore. It's just I can't be done. Um, but I refuse to watch anything out of order. Um, even if it's something that we're re-watching, we have to start at number one and go through 
even if it's a TC, TV series with multiple right. series, it, we have to go right back to the start. So, yeah, I'm sorry. It's going to be an awkward year, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> if you can watch number two without first seeing number one. I anyway, um, but going back to John Wick, uh, my wife and I became accidental fans, actually, um, when we binge watched the movies on Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't even realize there was a new one coming out in the cinema at the time, um, which we then obviously went to watch. And I remember seeing this, Neil, that people are referring to. um, And I kept my mouth shut, of course, because no one likes a nerd in the cinema. Um, But I recall the scene and seeing this Commodore 64 being used in this degenerate organized crime den, possibly, and I'm only just justifying it in my own head, but possibly maybe to avoid monitoring by modern law (laughs) enforcement. (laughs) Who knows? Um, uh, People are quick to point out, Uh, the inaccuracies of the scene of course like the IBM monitor that's plugged into it but some clearly don't realize that the scene wasn't trying to be period accurate at all the movie isn't set in the early to mid 80s um, but more in a sort of pseudo present day the time period isn't actually really explained Um, hence the scene in question is of these criminals in a mishmash of obsolete technologies Um, heck maybe there's an unseen key ra and it's plugged into a a modern pc for all we know Um, so really for me neil i don't care how accurate its use is i just find it really cool to see a nice 80s machine being used as a prop in a high profile movie can you think of any others neil um use of retro computers yeah this is a topic that's come up on the show before um and uh if duncan can just pop up the photo um that i've seen during the rounds of john wick 2 where you can see the commodore 64 there's a few things few observations to be made about this scene Uh, first of all the power light is not on on the c64 that's very definitely off uh you've got a rotary phone to the right of it i I don't quite know what the justification would be for a rotary phone in counter espionage i mean you could tap a a phone with buttons on just as well as a phone with a rotary dial phone but okay um the screen the ibm screen that's there uh the text that's on the screen my god that's chunky i mean that's not a 40 or an 80 column mode that's more like a 25 or 20 column mode isn't it clearly made up so that the viewer can see what's on the screen uh when watching it but absolutely unusable for um for, uh, sorry, if you can hear the door opening, Lily's just entered the cave. Say hello to the podcast, Lily. Hello, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it's clearly a very inaccurate setup, and, and it's a topic that's come up mm. in the show before. Uh, most recently, as I said, Doctor Who and the story about the flux. And I've recently came across a website off the back of thinking about this and doing a little bit of searching on the internet. And there's this really cool website that you may have heard of before called starinthecomputer.com. And I'd urge you to go and have a look. So I've learned just by browsing through this website um, that in a, in the Knight Rider episode, Junkyard Dog, you can see a Commodore PET 2001. That's the really cool rounded edged uh, pet, which looks really nice. Some people call it the Porsche pet. Um, in Short <laughs> Circuit, you can find a Coleco Adam. And in Field of Dreams, Build It and They Will Come, you can see a K-Pro 2. So just just if you want to become a, one of those movie go- goers that just got loads of knowledge, then this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to become the guy that knows <laughs> what computer was in every film and then I can bore the hell out of everyone at parties. Uh, it's a really nerdy website um, and I love it. I love it. You can search by computer. You can search by movie. It's a real rabbit hole and I'd encourage you all to go down it. Nice. I do remember you guys covering the C64 and Doctor Who, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, starring the computer.com, you say, Neil. Uh, that's that's my weekend yeah. sorted then. <laughs> Not a waste of time at all. Um, for me, if it's an obscure passing shot like the one we're discussing, um, and you can, it can easily be explained away, you, you don't really need to worry about the fine details. In my mind, you know, it's fine. I think it gets harder to forgive when the script writers actually try to explain its existence. Yeah and mess it up and and the one that really springs to mind here is and it's been doing the rounds again recently in an episode of bones um there's a black amiga 1200 and in the script they actually take time to correctly name it as a commodore amiga and uh, and one of the characters is actually one of the key characters is professing to have owned one in the past exactly like this model in fact she says <laughs> and i quote i had this exact model she then proceeds to spout that it has a motorola 6800 
processor, Neil. Not a 68,000, a 6800. <laughs> so, so close to being correct. Somebody had done a most of the research but obviously not quite enough um don't forget it was an amiga 1200 neil so even if she mispronounced 68000 it should be a 68020 of course so <laughs> so they they'd really tried and then just missed by a mile um she then goes on to state that it has a homemade operating system so I can only assume right. she's spent too much time on the Amiga Facebook groups and wants Workbench or Amiga OS to be open source, maybe. Um, mm. Who knows? Maybe maybe it was running Aros. I don't know. Maybe it was running <laughs> Aros, yeah. Um, but the best part is she then proceeds to load, and again, the power is off. There's no lights on the A1200, although even I can explain that because my lights weren't working for weeks, um, but the machine was fine. But she loads this secret game by inserting a five and a quarter inch floppy disk <laughs> yep into a dual ibm uh dual drive sorry ibm and basically the a1200 is just sitting on top of what is actually the pc but obviously it's going to be an extremely old pc spouting uh, sporting these dual five and a quarter inch drives and the game that loads from this archaic machine um looks something you know a little bit short of unreal tournament quality <laughs> so you can kind of explain that the storyline they're talking about is the fact that this game had been developed before doom so again they've done some good stuff in their research there um and and that the developer had this game come out would have been a millionaire so maybe something untoward has happened to him to to keep this a secret <laughs> but the fact that they've used this five and a quarter inch disc to load the damn thing and from a dead a1200 with no lights on it that oh, the whole thing just goes out the window sometimes less is more isn't it sometimes less absolutely is more. Um, a passing shot that's all it needs yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but if we just step back from it a bit um and we flip it the other way I mentioned last year when we talked about SpaceX and NASA and all of these recent rocket launches and things on the show, uh, mm. when you watch them in their control room conducting space missions, and control rooms now are full of laptops or Dell desktops and machines that we have at home, and we're seeing mm. worse cable management that we have at home because it's a temporary room where they've hurriedly set all these things up for the mission. And it, you see this, and it just feels wrong when you see that mm. in the modern day. And if a movie was authentic, we'd see exactly the same thing. We'd just see a boring-looking PC. Uh, it would probably be prompting you in the corner of the screen to install some update, um, you know. And the character would be using Microsoft Excel, uh, and that's just yes. not exciting for a movie. So I'm always prepared to cut these things a bit of slack on that front. Just as when a car explodes and does three somersaults in a completely impossible way, I think it's all part of the fun, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That the C sixty four nearly in that underground crime den in John Wick, it just works and that's all it needs. So Chris, can you believe it? This will make you feel old. The Commodore 64 has turned 40 years old. It's on the 7th of January 1982 that Commodore revealed it. Um, it would go on to be produced and sold in um, August of that year. I believe it appeared in shops, but they revealed the working machine uh, in January. It was the successor to the VIC-20. And uh, it came with an RRP of, uh, it was about 595 US dollars, because uh, obviously Commodore, US machine. And uh, just to give that some context, in 1983, so just a year later, the Apple IIe, you could have picked up for 1000 about $1,395. Um, and you could probably do pretty similar things. I know the Apple had a lot of room for expansion, um, and a lot of other features, but it's, you know, at nearly three times the price, you can mm. see that the C64 represented very good value for money. It, the Commodore 64 would be discontinued in April of 1994. So that's the equivalent of releasing a machine today and still selling it in shops in the year 2034, to put that into some context. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it sold, uh, the, the numbers um, are out for debate, but it sold somewhere according to different sources, between 12 and 17 million units, some say even more units. And approximately 10,000 software titles were officially released for it. Um, I think the only micro that I can think of outside of the PC uh, that comes close to that was probably the ZX Spectrum, which had something like 20,000, 22,000 titles released for it. Um, but that is still a huge amount of software, 10,000 software titles. Mm -hmm. 
Now, from a UK perspective, we often talk about um, US computers that were popular over here. Uh, not so much, for example, the Apple II. We had it over here, but it just wasn't popular because we had so many homegrown, low-cost options from the likes of Sinclair and Amstrad. But that's not the case at all with the C64. It was as popular here in the UK as it was anywhere else in the world shops mm. were full of games for it i knew kids with them my youth my local youth club even had one that you know, <laughs> if we'd been good they'd wheel out the c64 and let us play some games on that it was a hugely hugely popular machine as much here in the uk as anywhere else chris i know you didn't move to the u.s to, to the u.s i know you didn't move to the u.s at all i know you didn't move to australia until 2002 but i know you frequent retro groups there's uh is it the perth mm. amiga group that you go to yeah. and a couple yeah. of other groups so your knowledge is probably built up of retro history in australia and what your friends were using mm. was there much c64 use there that you can make out well i know in australia the c64 was incredibly popular um right. and so yeah i mean this really is exposing me in the in the first episode neil because <laughs> I, you can say goodbye to maybe your australian and your american viewership neil because <laughs> i have almost no memories of the c64 to be honest and it is it is recently from from um hanging out with those groups that you you mentioned especially mm-hmm. at the meets people uh, the perth amiga users group is fantastic in terms of people bring anything and anything is welcome uh, and so there's always at least one C64 there, if not multiple. Um, my only memories of it, I think I had one friend at school back in the UK now I'm talking about who had a C64 and I think I went to his house to play on it only once. Um, and I think maybe we played Commando. I do remember we played Outrun and I do remember at least thinking, well, that that's a lot better than the Spectrum port of Outrun, let's put it that way. Um, it was a fantastic fast port of Outrun on the C64. Um, other than that, it was, you know, we all did the comparisons. If you were buying a game in the shop, you looked at the screenshots on the back. So, you know, really that's the only other cap- comparison I can give. It's more recently I'm starting to learn about how amazing the SID chip was or is mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the music and the sounds that you can get out of that. But, yeah, very little hands-on experience, I'm afraid. Well, if you played Commando back in the day, you would have at least heard Rob Hubbard's SID tune on the on the uh, on the game there. So you would have had a flavour of how great the SID chip was back there. And you mentioned the controversial Outrun uh, Spectrum version, <laughs> yeah. uh, which um, famously had doctors doctored screenshots on the back. So the screenshots for the Spectrum version, for example, the lorries on the back would double the height to what they actually were in the game. So it made it look fantastic. But they were, they were completely that. doctored. Yeah. I did not yeah. spot that. I actually so enjoyed the Spectrum. Ver- oh, we're talking about the C64. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> it was slow um, on the Spectrum and it was colorless, but I loved it. <laughs> I, I had it on the Amstrad. I, I went out and bought it on the Amstrad CPC, which would probably have been a shoddy Spectrum port. Uh, mm. Yeah. The best thing about it was the second tape that came with the arcade soundtrack on it. Yes. Uh, the game, not so much. The game, not so much. <laughs> but um, my own memories of the C64. Uh, just like the Apple II, I, I seem to have uncles that were really into computing. So I had one that worked in the US and bought an Apple II back, and that's when I first played on it. And I had another who had a C64, um, and then later, that was where I first saw an Amiga, was at his house as well. Mm. And I think the first game I ever played on the C64 was a game called Beachhead. I don't know if you've ever played it. Um, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a war-based action game with lots of, I guess mini games, each level is a different kind of game. Uh, and I was really hooked on that. Um, really great game. And um, he had disk drives as well. And, mm. y- you know, in the UK, that was quite, un- it was certainly uncommon amongst my friends. You know, uh, mm. disk drives were the domains of businesses and adults who had the money to throw at disk drives. As kids, it was all cassette tapes um, mm. and, and, you know, uh, writing games, writing games, recording games over the tops of mixtapes uh, and covering up the tabs on your dad's favorite album and recording a game over it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Never. <laughs> hiding it away. But um, floppy disks, no, we just didn't have. But he did. So, I, you know, I got to experience the really fast loading times um, and then later the Amiga there as well. So, yeah, that was my first C64 experience. And um, I, th- I think there's more to the love of the C64 than simply the fact that so many people owned one. You know, I think there's a lot more to the current nostalgia for that machine than just the mm-hmm. volume of people. I think it's because it technically stands up so well. You yeah. and I 
didn't have a huge involvement with the C64. We used it, but not a huge amount back in the day, but we can still look at it and respect it and say, wow, that was a stunning machine for the period. And almost use it as a yardstick against nearly all other 8-bit micros to say, well, does it move sprites as smoothly? Does does the audio sound as good as the C64? It really was that good. And um, for me, it's always the comparison when I load up an Amstrad game uh, to go and look at it on the C64 and see if I was missing out uh, because, you know, the C64 had all those lovely custom chips to make everything so much better. So let's talk about jaw-dropping moments then because every platform has one. Um, It could be in the modern day, given that you didn't use the C64 a lot back in the day. Uh, do, do you remember any jaw-dropping moments about the C64? Any games that stunned you or demos or anything like that? Well, no, Neil. <laughs> See my previous <laughs> comment. Um, but uh, I, I think I'm, I'm beginning to develop a respect for it now. So I haven't really had those jaw-dropping moments other than, funnily enough, my friend who, who had his C64, that was the first time I saw floppy disks as well. He had a drive for his. Um, and so the load times and the lack of load failures was was one of them. Um, but looking at it in retrospect now, and, and I hate to say it, Neil, but if we compare it to things like the Spectrums and even those that came out after Amstrad bought them out, you look at the build quality of the Commodore and it's... It's it's completely different, you know, league uh, in terms of the keyboard, the the make, the 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 feel of the machine, um, and I think that says volumes for why they were so popular as well. Not just what they were capable of, but they they actually look like a proper computer. Can I put it that way? I, mm. I can't believe I'm saying this about the Spectrums, Neil, but they felt a bit more like toys in comparison to the Commodore. Um, yeah, the, the and- Commodore was clearly, it, it was built to a price point in typical Commodore fashion, but they got the balance mm. just right. And yeah, you would have been used to a very good keyboard having had the Electron. That has a beautiful keyboard on it, the Acorn Absolutely. Electron. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, you would have really felt the difference when you moved to a ZX Spectrum for that. Did it yeah, feel like a downgrade? I think by that I was just waggling the joystick too often and oh, okay. touching the keys, and that's probably <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think another thing for the C64 then, I believe I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Amiga struggled to gain traction in America because the C64 remained so popular. And again, mm. what a legacy! Uh, the fact that it's an 8-bit machine, and because it was so good, you couldn't entice people into the much better 16-bit era. It's crazy. Mm, mm, that makes a lot of sense and mm. and also um you know that popularity turned into part of commodore's downfall by them just spending too much time research and money on trying to keep the c64 alive with ridiculous mm. projects like the c64 gs console mm. um and the fact that it was still being sold in was it 1993 we said it was still in the shops let me go back and check that I yes think you said 1994 94 oh. in fact oh yeah no god our memories are so good, we can't even remember the start of the story. <laughs> five minutes ago, Neil. <laughs> you see, the problem I have with watching movies and remembering all that information. But yeah, 1994 is both impressive and a reflection of, you know, that whole what the hell were Commodore doing sort of situation. So, um, but hats off to the C64 and a big happy birthday to it. I know many like I looked upon it with envious eyes as a Amstrad owner. And uh, I think it deserves all the praise that it got and all the praise that it gets. And the accolade of it being the best-selling model desktop computer of all time, at least according to the Guinness Book of Records, is well-deserved and well-earned. So happy birthday, Commodore 64. Okay, time to fess up, Neil. Have you pre-ordered an Amiga 500 Mini? Oh, the A500 Mini. Uh, I haven't, and I'll tell you why, Chris. The um, the A500 Mini comes hot on the heels of the C64 Mini, and then you have the C64 Maxi. And these things, they sell everywhere, right? You've got them on the high street. You've got them online. They're distributed by local retailers pretty much everywhere around the world. They've really got their supply chain sorted with this thing. And... Um, The whole operation is not small fry by any stretch of the imagination, and neither is their marketing approach. Um, They seem to offer these up to pretty much anyone and everyone who might have a platform to show them off. And the reason I know this is um, because they did actually approach me (laughs) and offer me one some months back. And and I've got to be straight. I never accept um, things to the cave. Uh, if there are any obligations to review it or say anything about it or any obligations attached to it whatsoever, I always say to them, well, you can send me one, but I can't promise you anything is going to happen with it. 
And most people will say, well, we're not interested then. And that's fair enough. Um, but the reason I do that is because the way I see it, if you've got confidence in your product, you'll send it out there. You'll make it available and you'll, you'll make yourself available as well to answer questions. Uh, and and if you don't attach any conditions then that's a reflection of that so i checked this was the case with the uh with the a500 mini and sure enough it was so i said sure okay someone over so i've got one coming i'm making no promises that i'll review it on the channel but i will give it a go and try it out and if i can offer something because there'll be a slew of channels reviewing this thing and you'll get information about it from every angle if i feel like i can offer something that others aren't that i can offer a different opinion uh, a different insight then sure i'll make a video about it but there will be a lot of videos coming out about this thing and um so yes i've got one coming uh and the thing that excites me the most about the fact that this thing is coming is not the a500 mini itself it's that it comes with a usb tank mouse peripheral a recreated yes. tank mouse that i can use with <laughs> any any computer with the usb and i really i really want that thing more than anything else that's the attraction um, yeah. and i should point out that duncan has mentioned in our show notes that he has also uh, pre-ordered one as well so i've got mm. one coming duncan's got one coming have you got one coming chris Oh, yeah. Well, I've got to say, first of all, you sly dog, you're getting a freebie. <laughs> Did, didn't you say anyone with a platform, Neil? <laughs> oh, very, very nice. Very nice. I think, uh, yeah, uh, that excites me that, you know, that's obligation free because when uh, I have pre-ordered one to answer your question in short, but whenever you make a purchase, this is what I believe anyway, you are going to justify that purchase. So unless you're incredibly unhappy, you're going to say it's the bee's knees because you've put your own money behind it. So an in, uh, a re review by somebody like yourself that is obligation free is, is probably uh, more transparent, I think, hopefully. So that, that's fantastic to hear that. Um, but yeah, I have pre-ordered one, um, a bit like you, as soon as I saw that USB mouse, it's like, well, even if the mini is, you know, just sits on the shelf, that's, that's a must have right there. Um, so that's good. Um, but, um, I know this is going to be controversial in the community, perhaps, but I'm I'm really excited about the mini. Um, I know they, uh, especially now that they've released a full list of games and the March release date. Um, to me, I think the list of games looks fantastic. But with one exception, Neil, and this is one of my favourite games on the Amiga ever. Uh, let's talk about the list first of all, and then I'll get into yeah. which what game that got? I'm excited about but equally disappointed about, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, yep, on the list we've got Alien Breed 3D, Alien Breed Special Edition 92, Another World, Arcade Pool, All-Terrain Racing, Battle Chess, that's going to be fantastic with the mouse, um, Cadaver, California Games, uh, Dragon's Breath, F-16 Combat Pilot, Kickoff 2, uh, Paradroid 90, Pinball Dreams, Project X, Quack, Simon the Sorcerer, Speedball 2, Stunt Car Racer, Supercars 2, The Chaos Engine, The Lost Patrol, The Sentinel, Titus the Fox, Worms, The Director's Cut, Zool, uh, Ninja of the Nth Dimension. So that's the full list. Hmm. But for so me, Neil... Just, just Oh, just go before on, we go, go there, on. just just reflecting on that list, uh, what's yeah. standing out for me is the publishers. So you've got some Team 17 games, mm -hmm. you've got some Bitmap Brothers games, um, you've got Anko in Kickoff 2. Anyway, what I'm not seeing on there is Sensible Software. Uh, obviously, going down the Kickoff 2 instead of the Sensible Soccer, we've not got Cannon Fodder. Um, mm. Two huge, huge Amiga games. So I'm, I'm a little bit sad that they're not on there. But on the yeah. whole, um, aside from a couple like let's say um battle chess is good but it's a very old game i guess it's nice to have the full spectrum of the amiga's lifetime it doesn't have to be mm. all the the final and greatest games that came out for it arcade pool uh, i think that's a little bit of a cheap one good fun mm. but it doesn't show the system off to its best potential um other than that i've got i've got no complaints at all really i think that's yeah. quite a nice spread yeah, it's not bad, anyway, is it? you obviously have a reservation about something in there, so why don't you fill I, us in? I, I definitely do. Um, F-16 Combat Pilot, Neil. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's one of my favourite all-time games, uh, but I wouldn't have put it on the Mini at all. Uh, does it take a genius to figure out why? What do you think is wrong with this picture, Neil? Well, uh, Flight Sim, you're a man after my own heart. Um, I can't say I've spent a huge amount of time on this particular one, but it's nice to see it represented in the list. Um, you... you yeah, you you used a word earlier also um, before we get mm. into flights in in particular, 
uh, that probably shouldn't go unquestioned. Uh, and you probably said it without even thinking, but you said it might be con- controversial in the community that you uh, that you like this project. Oh, fair um, enough, yeah. Why do you think that to be the case? Okay. Um, well, I guess everyone has an opinion. I guess that's what I'm referring to. Um, and in the Amiga community, they are often conflicting, <laughs> as we know. Um, it would seem that there are some very vocal Amiga users with very, very tiny hands, Neil, and they insist that the A500 Mini should have a working keyboard. I, I don't think they thought that through. Um <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's those same people, maybe not, but some of the time it is, um, and they point out that you can run Amiga games on you know, anything like a Pi 4 um, for just as cheap. Uh, of course, you're still going to need licensed ROMs to do that and an external keyboard and a mouse. Unless, Of course, you, if you, you could use the Pi 400, but you're still going to need a mouse and you're going to need the, the legal ROMs. Um, others, of course, insist that you must be using real hardware and emulation, and you know that's fine. Emulation is the work of the devil, apparently. And, uh, you know, it's this thing must be running some some level of emulation. So within the existing Amiga community, I guess any opinion on the A500 Mini could be labelled as controversial. It could, um, it could, but but you've also used the phrase within the existing Amiga community. And what we've yeah. learned from the C64 Mini and the Maxi is it isn't aimed at those people. Yes, exactly. they will be... The, those people, some of them will champion it and they will help to propel its marketing and all the rest of it by just, just by being so happy that the Amiga is being represented. But this thing is on the high street. This thing is to uh, attract the attention of people who haven't even thought of the Amiga for 30 years and gone, wow, I used to have one of them uh, and make that impulse decision without thinking about the technology or anything like it. It's an Amiga. Yes. Here's a list of games that I remember. I'm going to take it home today, plug it in, and I'm going to play it. And then it'll probably go in a cupboard and I might not touch it ever again, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. sale. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, you know, for the reason I'm excited as somebody who owns the, the real hardware, Neil, similar to yourself, um, but I'm also happy with emulation. But this thing for me, it will just sit under the big TV and I don't need to add anything and buy anything extra. I can just plug it in and it's set and forget and, and it can just sit there for casual retro playing. And similar mm-hmm. to what you just said there, I personally see the Mini, once it hits the shelves, to be a gateway drug um just as your trash to treasure video neil was a nudge back into the wonderful world of retro computing and amiga i didn't even know it was something i was looking for this is what these things do when people see them on the shelves this actually hooks back into our c64 story actually neil um and we didn't discuss this before but when i saw the c no sorry it was actually the c64 mini in my local computer game shop on the shelf I saw it and I saw the picture of the C64. Having never owned a C64, I was tempted. I was absolutely yeah. tempted to pick that up. Um, and even more so when the Maxi came out. I didn't, but I was extremely tempted. Um, mm. And that is what this kind of product is about. It's about that nudge that for, for that pang of nostalgia. And this will actually bring people into into the community anyway because it will be a gateway they'll they'll have a quick play and they'll go oh but there were heaps of other games and they may choose to sideload them if they get their head around that or they may go prowling on ebay and start bidding against me Um, (laughs) but you know to to be honest neil um you know who else has managed to put an amiga back in brick and mortar retail stores since the demise of escom in 1996 yeah that's true that's true and and we may well see a maxi version of it come further down the line so uh, that that keyboard requirement uh, by some people can be met um now let's move back let's move all the way back to your your gripe about the games <laughs> list we, we were talking about f16 flight simulator and yeah. um yeah thinking about it you're not going to have a good time playing a, playing it if you've only got the joystick um or the mouse you are going to need a keyboard for all of those you know all of those button presses to change your, your your speed and and chuck some chaffs and flares out the back how do you do that with just a joypad yeah, absolutely. You need a keyboard, Neil, for any good flight simulator. Um, and despite its lack of exposure, F-16 Combat Pilot is one of the most combat, complex simulators out there. Um, I've actually got the, for those that are watching on the video, I've got the manual right here. Oh, we love a manual. You, I know How many you pages? Page How many pages is it, Neil? I know 103. <laughs> 103, 103 page pages. Wonderful. And that's all in English. That's not multiple languages. That is all in English, including flight maneuvers and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I've also got the, cue, the the cheat card here. Not not cheats as in cheats, but the keyboard shortcuts. And I counted them earlier, and there's 31 
different key presses. That is not including the work you, that you do on the joystick and the fire button. Um, so how many buttons does the joypad with the mini got, Neil? Do you know? Um, well, it's a CD32 inspired joypad, isn't it? So it's so got four it have on 31? the front. No. Um, I don't know if it's got shoulder <laughs> buttons, but it, yeah, certainly hasn't got that many. <laughs> it hasn't got 31 buttons. So yeah, you'd, need yeah. the, you'd need the CDTV pad to do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That would get you closer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Atari Jaguar. How many is that? There, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quite a few. Yeah. But, um, so- yeah not, not quite enough, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. You know what would have been a good choice would if they mm. swapped that out for Gunship 2000 because uh, mm. there was a CD32 version of that. So obviously okay. that would have been adapted to work with the pad. So that would have at least been workable, I think. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they've tweaked F-16 Combat Pilot to work or if they're just assuming you're going to plug in an external keyboard or use the on-screen keyboard. I don't, I don't see know, how they could, yeah. unless they had the, the source code to change and recompile the game. Yeah. I don't see how they could have, yeah. yeah. Unless they've yeah. created some kind of button combination on the G, uh, on the joypad. Like, so if you hold down A, it's a shift and you can press B for a, a secondary button and then, you know, yeah. you have shift buttons. I, I really don't think they would have done that. <laughs> no, probably not. They're, they're how would you remember those combinations? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so anything else from the list of games that you're really excited about, Neil? Um, let's just go back there. I mean, Stunt Car Racer is always a classic, and I'm assuming that this thing will be able to be configured to run not just as a stock A500 for some of those games. So you might be able to mm. enjoy Stunt Car Racer at an A1200 speed, perhaps. I don't know how they're setting this up, but a little bit more smooth. Um, uh, yeah, there's not going to be the ability for link-up players there, so you can have two two-player Stunt Car Racer. I'm assuming there won't be the ability to do that. That would have been nice, I hadn't thought it? about that. that. That would make me sad. Yeah. <laughs> But there are some good party games like California games. You can play with your friends. Uh, Supercars is a split screen racer, so you can have a good head to head. Chaos Engine, great two player game. What else? Speedball 2, brilliant tournament game. Uh, yeah, a lot of these games are two player. So um, I think it's going to be a, 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 good, uh, a good one for a couch co-op session, definitely. Mm. I think they're being smart selling because the, they, they are selling the controller and the mouse separately as well, aren't they? So that's probably a smart move. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah, but for me, yeah, I mean, there's there's heaps of reasons to be excited on that list, I think, and you've mentioned a couple of them. But uh, Pinball, uh, the wife loves a good game of Pinball, so that I keep her happy when she realizes mm-hmm. I've already purchased one of these things. Um, Speedball <laughs> 2, definitely good fun. Stunt Car Racer, like you mentioned. I think I will enjoy a game of Battle Chess, Neil. Um, it's the, the most fun way to make a slow game slower than it already is. <laughs> it's that sexy queen. It gets you every time. That sexy queen just sort of... <sighs> she- she does slinking wiggle. her way down the board yeah <laughs> she, she does wiggle yeah. <laughs> yes yeah alien breed that's great alien breed 3d first person shooter you know um the amiga has so few so i'm glad they managed to, to squeeze one in so i think it's a stunning list and um i think again what the community needs to realize that a you're going to be able to sideload your own games anyway and then you know any um um decisions you have to make about how you go about acquiring those is left up to you up to you um but for them to release this as a retail product people need to realize obviously that they have to be licensed these games regardless of how old they are and i know you mentioned some of the publishers um they have to be licensed to go onto a retail product so obviously there are restrictions about so it may not just be a choice of we think these games should be on it they would have also been limited by the games that they can actually get written permission to include, um, which I, I believe would be quite a challenge, um, especially for some of these older companies that might not even exist on people's mm. favorite titles. So, yeah, no, I think it's great. And I'm excited about the the March launch date. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I hope mine will turn up soon. And as soon as it does, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. And I'll, if nothing else, I'll let you know my first impressions on the show. So we'll end the show with our community question of the week. And we asked you just before Christmas, what were your all-time favorite Christmas retro gaming memories? So pretty much the same question we asked ourselves at the top of the show. You've heard ours, so let's hear yours. The top three uh, most upvoted ones on our subreddit, which is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, if you want to take part. Now, the most popular one was from Richard Shears. So it reads Christmas 1983. Two years after I started on my quest to own a computer, I'd finally worn my mother's resolve down. I didn't realise this until that Christmas morning. There was an unusually large amount of boxes wrapped to one side with a particularly big one taking pride of place. 
Tearing off the paper revealed some silver. The words I could initially read were friendly, pewter. My heart raced. Could it be? Yes, I was now the proud owner of... Can you guess, Chris, before I carry on? I was now the proud owner of a silver box. Well, no, not from not from friendly <laughs> pewter either, to be honest. I was no. now the proud owner of the Vic-20. It was secondhand, and it turned out to be an advantage. The other presents turned out to be a data coder, three different memory expansions, a few game carts, and quite a few cassette tapes. Yes, finally, 10-year-old me was about to be lost in the digital realm, one that I've never really emerged from. So the VIC-20, um, one you've used a lot, Chris. Have you been back to explore the VIC-20? No, not yet. Never touched one yet. So, yeah. <laughs> what about yourself? <laughs> um, I, the thing about the VIC-20 is it always uh, strikes me as being um, just short of a C64. So if I use a VIC-20, I always want that little bit more from a C64. But in 1983, like Christmas, I would have been very excited to unwrap not just that, but all of the extras as well. Um, he would have that would have kept him busy for months i'm sure our second most popular answer comes from starcade 2084 it reads my favorite christmas gaming memory would also be my first so his first gaming memory as well christmas 1982 on a shopping trip to sears with my grandmother i stopped to play the demo unit of sears telly games which was featuring donkey kong i was having a blast as any 11 year old would have playing video games anywhere they could and my grandmother had to practically pull me away to continue the shopping. Come Christmas morning, what I would find under the tree was the very Sears Telly games, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, and a couple of other games lost to the fuzziness of time. My journey into home video gaming had finally begun. I don't remember having another video game-based Christmas uh, gift, but this would have definitely topped my first but it wouldn't have topped my first if he had. So uh, a, a telly games, a Sears telly games uh, with Donkey Kong and Pac-Man there, Chris. Was that a clone of another system, Neil? Do you know the Sears um, telly games? It was the repackaged Atari 2600, wasn't it? Okay. Just double yeah. check that. Yeah, I think it was. So it was perfectly compatible with them all. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, a Sears brand label Atari 2600 is exactly what yeah. it was. So oh, um, 1982, nice. I, uh, it would have been... A little bit old by then. It's been released for a few years, but for an 11-year-old with those games that you would have been seeing in the arcade, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, mm. that would have been plenty enough. That would have blown my mind, absolutely. Well, definitely around that period, it was the Atari 2600 that I was lusting after at that point. So anything was, similar would have got my vote, yeah. absolutely. Yep. And the final, the third most popular answer came from New Maze 2092. We're definitely in a specific time period here because we're in 1983 again. Eight years old, receiving my first computer. Oh, here we go. Yes. The green screen beauty of the Dragon 32. Centipede and Frogger. That analog joystick. Terrible for Frogger. <laughs> the games my parents had spent hours typing in and saving to tape for me. Oh, wow. That's dedication. Uh, probably because there weren't many games you could buy in the shop. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my dad reading, my mum using her typing training, wondering why the hell it wouldn't work, but soldiering through to make my Christmas day magical. It may not be the most successful retro computer, but it set me on my way, learning to love coding and the logic of computers. So that's the, the legacy. Say what you like about the Dragon 32 and its um, relative unsuccessfulness and lack of software titles out there. Uh, the legacy for New Maze was uh, a love of coding and a logic of computers that has no doubt seen them through. Um, do you work in the in the computer industry at all, Chris? Do you have retro computers to thank for your current career in any way? Oh, absolutely. I don't currently. Um, I sort of landed myself in some boring middle management job that I will never speak of. Um, but that's <laughs> definitely my career path. And absolutely, my brother that bought me the Plus 3 constantly reminds me that my success in inverted commas is down to the gift that he gave me that birthday. And it really was, you know, although I did obviously play more games than uh, code than do any coding, um, just learning how to look after machines. And especially once I got into PCs and accidentally wiped the hard drive and didn't do format slash S um, and then had to figure my way out of that problem. And, and that is definitely what led me into a career in both IT support and multimedia. 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, totally. In terms of the Dragon 32, again, it's only recently getting back into this journey and discovering and, and bothering to look out to other systems. And it's like, there was a computer that was made in Wales? Mm. <laughs> I had no clue until until recent years. So that's that's actually fantastic. And it probably is one that I stabbed away on. Uh, you probably did the same yourself, Neil. You know, there was a queue of kids saying Boots or WH Smiths or whatever to get to whatever computer they happen to have on display. Um, and there were certainly some that I played on in, in that uh, scenario that I didn't then recognize as computers that my friends had or uh, or that yeah. I got to own myself. So that's possibly one of them. Yeah. One of them. Fantastic yeah. Well, thank you to everyone for contributing your answers. Uh, our first community question of the week for 2022, you can participate by leaving a comment in our subreddit. And uh, it's a question of place. Uh, the sense of place is often strong uh, around nostalgia, where we bought our computers, where we bought our games. So this week's question is, we want you to share your memories with the place where you bought your games, good or bad. Was it a small independent store? Was it chain? Was there a dodgy guy there selling pirated games out the back? Tell us all of your stories. Tell us where you went. Describe it to us. What did you buy? What did it smell like? <laughs> was was it was it dodgy? Was it uh, a fresh high street retail store? Um, was it upstairs? Was it downstairs? I mean, I, I'm going to really enjoy thinking about this and describing it to you in the next show, and, and no doubt you mm. will, Chris. I mean, if I immediately oh, say to you, Chris, tell me the name oh. of the store. Don't describe it. Just tell me the name of the store, Chris. Where did you right go? now? Megabytes. Yeah. There you go. Immediately an independent, an independent megabytes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to hear your stories. We'll, we'll pin the question on the subreddit and we'll look forward to reading them. And until next time, take care. Bye-bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. 